Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. In Greek, they have four words for love. Storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, means affection, the sort of love there ought to be between their relations. Philia, P-H-I-L-I-A, means friendship. Eros, E-R-O-S, is of course the love between the sexes. And Agape, A-G-A-P-E, is love in the Christian sense, God's love for man and the Christian's love for the brethren. Well, my friends, we are tackling the four loves at the beginning of this season three of the podcast, and today we are at the third of these four loves that Lewis describes, and that is Eros. Now, joining me to tackle this uh, sensitive subject, popular subject, overwhelmingly uh, let's avoid it at all costs subject, uh, is the Right Reverend, our resident (laughs) Anglican priest of the pod, uh, Mr. Hayden Butler. Hayden, welcome back. It's good to be back, David. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Now, Hayden, uh, I bring you on for, for, uh, I don't know, is it a touchy subject? Is it a difficult subject? It's one that I think Lewis's sort of notorious clarity... Uh, is an, is a sort of a fantastic help in these times for this particular idea. When people think of love, a lot of times it isn't very long before they think of eros or they think of sexual love or they think of the love between the sexes, as he says. And as soon as they think that, then especially maybe if they're Christian, they start thinking about the end of the world and how everything is on fire. And, you know, what about our children? And what about, you know, the latest movie or the TV shows that are pushing this or doing that? And it all gets pretty crazy pretty fast. Lewis does not get crazy fast, but he does describe some distinctions. And one of those is that he says Eros is not sexual experience in general. It's not um, what he would describe, uh, or the classical world would describe as, let's say, more Venus, right? But that Eros is more the idea of being in love, right? So, so if we could just start with a slight distinction um, from just, ah, sex, sexuality, and <laughs> all the things that make everyone, you know, strongly opinionated and, uh, and sometimes overwhelmed. If we could start with that idea of being in love, it it might make a distinction and a clarity, but it might not make it any easier because then I immediately think of a culture that's obsessed with being in love, a culture that seems to hold out romantic love as the solution to all life's problems. So, so even with some distinctions, it doesn't make it less problematic. It just makes it a little more narrowly problematic. <laughs> now, you, a uh, pastor... Um, teacher of high school students who are in the thick of all these things and their parents uh, with them in some ways. How, how do you approach um, when you get to texts or ideas, because this is not foreign to your teaching mm-hmm. or certainly to yourself as a minister or people of all different ages, how, how do you find uh, ways to bring people into this idea of eros, of love between the sexes, um, in a way that is not scary? Or do you start scary? <laughs> I, I I think that I, I think people are scared enough. Um, 
generally if they're asking the question it's a lot of times it's from a place of of fear um even when it's out of curiosity um mm. it seems that that curiosity is motivated by a little bit of a kind of fear and i think that this a conversation of eros for as much as on the surface it seems to uh divide the what we might call the secular world from the the, the christian world I actually think this can be a conversation where both of them have a meaningful conversation because um, it's been my experience that both, you know, folks of, you know, of no identified faith and those who identify as Christians um, are both wildly freaked out about this topic in general. And, but, and also both uh, have their own way of, of sort of, of manhandling the subject of Eros. Um, this te- tends to be one of the more. This, this does tend to be a, a focal point in my own teaching at the at the school because, really, you know, I, being my my sort of center is teaching medieval literature, and the medieval literature that we teach is is, is haunted by this you know, by the figure of Eros, you know, responding to the classical world and kind of and then kind of making its way into the modern world. And there's a there's a, oh, a an intense conversation happening about that 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 topic. So whether or not you're you're coming at it from a position of, you know, sort of being more inclined to be libertine about Eros mm-hmm. or more inclined to be puritanical about Eros. I think in both cases, you're responding to a creeping sense of despair and fear about Eros. And so I think this is a good place, a good table at which the Christian and the non-Christian can actually gather to talk. I love I love that you say that because whether it's being heralded as sort of a salvation or a, as you say, a, a libertine sort of expression of who I really am or it's being, you know, recoiled from as what's going to ruin our homes and our children and everything else. Um, it is taking up a ton of oxygen in the room. It's 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 become the story immediately. Um, and too often, maybe when people think about love. Now, Lewis has it third, which was already a pretty deliberate move on his part to introduce what Laura and I were talking about in the previous two episodes, which is storge, the mm. love of family, the familiar that becomes affectionate and fond over time, and then philia, the love of, tr- of friendship, of deep friendship. And, and so he already doesn't give it first billing, which of course is, is intentional on his part. And, uh, and then when he does, he, as I said before, he makes a distinction right away between Eros and Venus or between being in love and the sexual experience or sexual desire. Our culture does not make that distinction from what I can tell. Uh, would you say that's fair? <laughs> I, I, I don't know anymore. I, I, think, I think yes and no in, okay. in this way. I think in this case, it tends to be, a, I, I've seen it more the, it's the Christian error. The, mm. the, the, the typical Christian error is to conflate those things again, so that eros is one and the same with Venus. So to the, the, the erotic is, is always sexual. Right. Um, and that is a, I think that is a characteristic error that I've seen in my experiences with Christians. And it tends, actually, I think I'm seeing more among non-Christians right now, um, a wild and maybe even, um, excessive separation of the two so mm. that Eros actually is separated from Venus. It's an abstracted kind of er- erotic and that actually the, the kind of concrete ex- expressions of these things have, are starting to sort of fade into the background. And, and actually it is more about the idea of the thing or mm. the, the sort of the 
numinous sort of um, etherealized version of the thing rather than like any particular action or particular person or particular thing. Right. Yeah. Don't tell me um, what to do with my body or how to approach that. Mm -hmm. And those things are not the same thing, right? What I would have in my body is just a physical material mm -hmm. thing, um, just like, you know, eating or anything else, any right. other kind of bodily function. That's not the same thing as, as love or this, this abstract ideal in people's mm -hmm. minds so that their, their physical or their bodily behavior is not implicated in what they right. think about when they think about love. Seems kind of like we're getting into like a kind of post-body, you know, right. world, you know. <laughs> Transhumanist. Well, okay, yeah. so if uh, Venus tends to either be completely separate from, um, in a way that is, uh, we would probably argue ultimately here, very unhealthy, or conflated with, um, how should we understand eros in, in general terms? Should we just understand it as sort of desire? Is that, is that, a, I, I think, is that enough? I think that's a good place to start okay. um, because that seems to be how, how it's historically been understood. And I think it's helpful to understand that, you know, eros has meant different things in different times, you know. Uh, Lewis is, was, a, was an, an attentive student of eros as it emerged in the classical and medieval tradition. You know, if you, if you look at the, what could be called the center of his work, I think you could make an argument that um, a notion, notions of love actually may be the golden thread that sort of weave through a lot mm -hmm. of his works and connect them. I mean, his, his own sort of doctoral work was on this, this idea of love, the allegory, uh, of, know, love. The allegory yeah. of love. It, and it's, it's one of those books no one reads because it's never part of the six pack that you get with <laughs> right. Lewis. Um, but it's, but it's one of those, it's one of those books and it is a dense book. It's an academic book, sure. but it's, it's, it's a book that is a, is a startling confrontation of many notions of, of love um, uh, that he was seeing in his own time, but what he saw as an ongoing conversation through the centuries about, about what love is, and especially his attention to the medieval tradition. But I mean, it, it helps us, I think, to remember we go back to the classical world and eros is is a is a frenzy eros eros is a is is looked at as a kind of is a is a as a demon yeah. it's a it's a spirit that yeah. uh that comes and possesses people uh and drives them in in strange directions it's really not until you get to like plato right where where there's a distinction between a kind of base madness that, that some people falsely, what he says, falsely call eros. Mm. And in the symposium, he makes this sort of distinction and a, and a noble sort of eros, a noble eros that actually represent, that, that is actually a, a sort of a calling from the, the ethereal world of the forms, a calling of the beautiful um, and a desire for the beautiful. Mm. So that eros, as it works in the human soul, is ultimately a desire to commune with beauty itself and works its way up through a sort of a ladder of abstraction from the concrete experiences of beauty and beautiful people and beautiful things up through like things that unite those particular examples and ultimately to the thing that makes all things beautiful, which is the form of beauty itself. Mm. And that gives us a kind of idea of like, oh, wow, there's a kind of transcend transcendence here that's possible. Something good actually can can be the, the, end, the proper end of this. And it's really when we 
when we despair of that transcendence that we get caught up in carnality and mm. things like that. That's that's a helpful first step. Now, there's problems that arise out of that definition too, and the medievals sure. spend centuries sort of unpacking that, and that's, I think, what Lewis is getting at. Right, and that, that opening distinction, though, especially, like you say, let's say from the world of Homer or even um, the Greek tragedians mm-hmm. or... Um, the sophists, I think of like Protagoras has right. a whole defense of Helen. It's like, how can you blame Helen if she was possessed by the right. demon god Eros? <laughs> how can, there's no culpability because there's no ability to resist this god, this right. demon. Um, it controls, uh, you know, our passions in these ways. And and before we dismiss sort of the Homeric or, or that world to sort of a, a dark age, Greece or some other whatever... Um, you know, Lewis will mention even in this this uh, part of the essay or this essay in the series, um, you know, what what drives people to murder suicide? What drives people to the, the, the crimes of what? A passion, right? Passion. The frenzied uh, nature of so much of our violence and our uh, and our crimes in the modern world are are so and so knew so and so and felt crossed by this, betrayed by that, revenge for this. And so it's it's not well once upon a time you know when they didn't really understand how you know uh, you know the brain chemistry worked they thought maybe that eros was a, a demon <laughs> it's like no uh, you know it looks pretty demonic if this Actually, is kind of what does, is driving right? so much of no, the extremes right. of human behavior that's right I think you know and I think that's where we get to the you know we get to a medieval meditation on on love on on erotic love as as a passion mm. um, you know. The, the, I think classically and, and in the medieval period, you have you have I, the idea that eros is passionate, but I think we have to come back to an, under, an older understanding of what passion means. You know, the, like etymologically, passion means suffering. Uh, it means to su- it means passion to suffer for Christ, this thing. Yeah, and so, yeah. why why suffer? Why is eros a kind of suffering? Mm. I think Plato really you know lays the groundwork for it, and he helps us understand this: is that ultimately, um, if eros is a desire for the beautiful. Um, there comes a point where, um, the, you know, Plato paints us this picture of a sort of, of diatomas ladder, right? Where it's this ladder of, of ascent uh, from the world of sensible things into the world of the ultimate. So, diatomas, right? actual woman. Right. That Socrates is uh, in love with, yeah. as far as it goes. As far as it goes, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Um, but he, she's also the teacher, yeah. and and she's saying, you know, this love is sort of the first step on this this journey. That's right. Yeah, and so this love of a of a particular person is but the first rung. Uh, they 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 sort of become a vehicle through through which we sort of ascend to the idea of what makes that person beautiful or and the love lovable makes them lovable and then we we move up into abstracted until we get to like the thing that makes all things beautiful itself the beauty the form of beauty itself but i think later commentators start to sort of elaborate on the experience of trying to do that and this is where we get i think the idea of passion which really emerges in a lot of the medieval romances Mm -hmm. which is this idea of of at some point you realize that i can't transcend i can't actually I, I, I despair of, of being able to actually commune with beauty itself. Um, I get caught up somewhere along the line, or um, I get enamored with and fixed to this, you know, a particular beautiful person. 
um, and feel this inner longing to transcend while at the same time wanting to to retain that person mm. and I feel ripped in half mm. which is the the passion of eros it is the suffering of eros is to feel a, a desire to transcend up to the form of beauty but then also to feel connected to and, and affixed to the beautiful person that you know is my muse as uh, uh, mm-hmm. my, my source of inspiration about beauty and I feel I feel torn by that I feel and so uh, in the medieval romances as Lewis points out in the allegory of love and others have commented it's uh, it, it, you see this this idea of what some have called like the Tristan myth which is this this idea of an a, a longing for something transcendent that you sort of despair of uh, because you're you're sort of you're sort of anchored to you realize yet yeah, I can't I can't do that. I'm, mm. I'm I'm torn between these two things. I can't actually to to actually go and commune with the beautiful would mean an utter negation of everything else, mm. and a and a and a profound desire not to do that. Like eventually, you realize like I have to die mm. in order to commune with beauty itself. Mm. And there's a tra- sense of tragedy that develops around eros of like of either I have to stay in the world of lower you know of lower things of baser things. Um, which becomes sort of antagonistic to my ultimate desire of the right. heart to transcend it's supposed it. to be this vehicle of transcendence, this ladder. It yeah. ends up being the contest against or some opposition. Exactly. And so what happens in, in that sort of passionate eros is it, there's an antagonism that develops between the, the sort of the spiritual, transcendent, ethereal things and the world of tangible, you know, tangible incarnate things. And these worlds get more sort of you know, uh, more torn from each other and 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 divided from each other. Mm. And eros is this sort of desire that that aims us towards those ethereal things, but the gap fixed between them seem is unbridgeable, becomes unbridgeable, which produces in the person who's sort of possessed by the spirit of eros, even if it is a noble one, a sense of despair that I can never actually have this desire requited. And even and so it it, it produces, I think, on the one hand, a kind of philosophical despair mm-hmm. that the thing that that this desire is 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 trying to pull me toward I actually can never attain mm. on the one hand on the other hand you can sort of respond to that the other one of the responses that despair is the other option which is a kind of I think hedonism mm-hmm. which is like okay I can't ever get to this forget spiritual it. thing forget that might as well just celebrate carnality you know <laughs> you know and wallow in Venus and so you know eros despaired of becomes you know the demon Venus who yeah. then who then just invites into all kinds of libertinism I and think it's, and all the modern analogs are in play then you know whether it's someone's the fantasy that romantic love as such will solve life's problems and then you meet an incredible person marry an incredible person and uh oh you are not transcended uh, (laughs) to all things um and then do you keep looking for the more wonderful person right many people have uh or do you do you say you know what that was a it was a fool's errand to begin with and, you know, life is really just about, you know, bodily enjoyment while it lasts and uh, right. eat, drink, and be merry. Well, because it has to be at that point because it becomes the closest thing to, um, it becomes the closest thing to that, that to, to reaching the other world mm-hmm. that you can experience while still being alive and not just having to negate the whole of existence to get there. Because, you know, think about, like, this is why I think Lewis's definition is helpful of the love between the sexes is, is you, you imagine the world of the male and the world, the world of the masculine and the world of the feminine as, you know, as completely other to each other. They're otherworldly to one another. And you have this, 
um, to be to have a love that in, that draws you into an, the other world, mm-hmm. the otherworldliness mm-hmm. of the other, is is a kind of metaphor. It's a kind of um, it's a kind of way of experiencing a microcosm of what it might be like to actually transcend and commune with the with beauty itself, one, one to the other, to be brought into a world and to have a oneness with a world that is not your own world. That is the when you sort of when that gap gets fixed between that and the actual world of the forms the actual world of the ultimate things that becomes the highest thing you can aspire to. Hmm. And so then this also for us is where you reach sort of the limits or I would say sort of the tragedy of the Greek world. Right. Right. The, the, the Greco Roman sort of the very best um, Hmm. is ultimately not. It's a desire that's always deferred. It's always out of reach. Yeah. And and the truly wise or the truly contemplative or the truly sort of self-controlled can continue to strive until their last breath, right. um, having not ever sort of attained. Right. But I mean, you get to the edge of things, right? With like with uh, Plato's dialogue, the Phaedo, or, you know, where you have the, the, the sort of the myth at the end of what's after this moment socrates is on his literal deathbed and he's about to drink the hemlock mm-hmm. and he, or he's drunk drank the hemlock at this point his students are devastated and he's like let me tell you a likely story of what could be what happens next mm-hmm. and and tells the story about how the philosopher having having been having their soul formed by the love of wisdom um is not going to stay and and sort of be be bogged down by by you know the the gravity of the earth and these and the things that, and the and the things of the the world of of becoming will actually be able to cross that 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 fixed gap into the world of of things that are the the ultimate things the, the source of all things and 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 actually be welcome there and actually be able to to endure it mm. and and that kind of that that thing that is a it's a hopeful myth. It's like the closest. It's like this 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 really interesting vision that Plato ha- that Plato puts in that dialogue, um, but it's still that kind of desire deferred. It's like it's it's a maybe this could be the case. Mm. You know, maybe mm. this could be the thing. Maybe there is a way to cross that 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 vast expanse between this world of things as we know it and the world of the ultimate things. But again, this is a likely story. I'm about to find out. Goodbye. So, so <laughs> right, right. So that's so interesting because what then maybe we are faced with is the classical world sort of two unresolved uh, directions of eros, either plunging into carnality um, or hope or love or fulfillment always deferred, um, always more and always out of reach. Um, we are very much seeing that in our time in our space right where it's either this 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 unattainable fantasy that mm-hmm. will always just it, it maybe over the next hill maybe the next person maybe the next swipe maybe the next date maybe the next whatever right. um a fear of missing out like can't settle for a right. person because there may be someone better in whatever ways better might mean right. um so people are obsessively driven by this romantic fantasy always out of reach or plunged into carnality, which is a form of nihilism, a form of sort of despair, as you said, in which uh, all we have is this, and so body and and love, these things can be separated or annihilated or whatever they might be. Um, Hauerwas, I mean, one of the most devastating um, lines, I remember him talking about the, the narrative that many um, 
uh, Americans live by. And he's ta- he was talking about people that he grew up in and around. And he was talking about the loss of a story, of a tradition, of, of, of something that could sort of guide them through life. And he said the story of lower class white people, in his case, lower class white people was drink, screw, and die. Yeah. And that that was it, that, that life was about partying, hooking up with people, and then, and then that was it, yep. and, then, and then we're going to die. And I remember hearing that, and I remember feeling that, and seeing that, and being around that, and loving people who, whose, whose horizon of meaning or hope was just the next weekend's party, the next binge, the next whatever, the next person they might hook up, the, the next whatever. But it was the most, it was the bleakest, most nihilistic, sad sort of, you know, Venus sort of demonic, right? The right. demonic form of Venus, drink, screw, and die is the story that people are living lives according to. Um, and, and yet, we are in a post, at least my argument for the podcast, a post-Christian world that is tr- that is almost returned to this classical sort of two-way path of eros right. on the other side of something that was not these two ways, right? So somewhere in the middle, um, before the maybe even darker despair of our moments returned to a classical pagan sort of approach, there was something different in the middle. And you know, I think of book three of uh, The Fairy Queen, right? Where mm. Britomart is of the, the physical world, the tangible world. She's this sort of warrior princess woman. And she goes, you talk about the world of the sexes, other world, or she goes into the world of fairy, the world of fantasy, right. to retrieve, to find and retrieve her lover. Uh, the one that was prophesied that would be her lover and these kinds of things. She's driven by a story of love, but not to stay in the fantastic no. realm or in fairy itself, but to bring him, Artigal, back into England, like literally right. to make history, right? To then father uh, or, or give birth to a line that will give birth to kings and queens, et cetera, et cetera, right. and be like the founding of the nation and things like this. So Spencer arrives as a Christian speaking into using all the classical stuff, right, in the Fairy Queen, and yet offering a form of retrieving from the transcendent world and bringing back to the historical world, incarnating this like always deferred, always further, always more, but now finding it not in escaping the particular, but bringing it back into the particular. And this is, of course, the shape of the Christian story. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And then that's Lewis's, you know, that's Lewis's turning the corner, right? Is, is the incarnation, uh, the incarnation of Christ changes everything. Um, the myth becomes fact, uh, you know, and, and you have, um, you have the sort of the, the haunt, the haunting of Eros, um, is, you know, the whole, the whole nature of Eros changes. And I, that, that's why I think you have to read the four loves, the essay on Eros, understanding that mm. in, in that he's speaking of eros redeemed whereas for m- a lot of human history eros was was a was a kind of destabilizer yeah um, it's only really because of the fact of the incarnation that eros is something that can be noble that it it actually gives gives stability and a, and a foundation to what plato talked about plato had this sort of this myth of eros, where it could be noble because it might let us, it might point us towards beauty itself. But again, there's a lot of practical problems with that. Um, 
the Christian, you know, the Christian story is so significant because the 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 one in whom the forms hold together, the one in whom goodness, truth, and beauty are, he who is goodness, truth, and beauty comes down. Mm. And he he crosses the, the Jacob's gap. ladder, right? Descends. He the descends ladder. the ladder. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and uh, he descends the ladder and becomes part of the world of of history, of fact, of of the tangible things, and that forever reorients the meaningfulness of of that world, of the mm. world of 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 created things, because now there it has been established that. He who is ultimate meaning and ultimate fullness and the source and and end of all desire, uh, he has actually become part of the world and is is and that that world has been is beginning has begun to be redeemed to be by that it's redeemed in the sense that it's been given the the possibility of bearing ultimate meaning again hmm. because he who is ultimate meaning became a part of that world, and so eros changes right it's not this desire in us that points us towards a place that we can't we 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 eventually despair of actually being able to attain mm-hmm. or we you know valiantly fight to our last breath believing in and then throw ourselves into the unknown saying i, I and hopefully we've aimed our trajectory correctly mm-hmm. and and now we have the one who is at the end of all things coming down and standing among us and making his dwelling among us in us so that we can have a dwelling in him. And this is where you start getting what, the emerging idea of like the, what, what St. Augustine is talking about, where you have, uh, you know, this, this desire is, can actually be requited. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing, you know, I think you could read Confessions, the great, the, his great work Confessions, as a, as a sort of commentary on the transition from the classical to the Christian of, wow, like this desire that, that had been developed in me by being educated in all of these things um, could never find a home until it found, until it found its home in the one who made his home among us. Mm. And it's so beautiful because in, in the confessions, Augustine sort of chastises himself for moments in his life in which he could weep over Dido. Mm. He could weep over, over the great myths. He could weep over this unrequited sort of longing. Mm -hmm. And yet he did not, as he says uh, later, it did not weep over his own state of sort of misdirected eros. And then he experiences, as you said, and as we would want to bring forward in a contemporary context, not the banishment of desire, right? Um, But the redemption of of desire. Not to be something feared, but something that has its place in the very one who orders and reorders our loves. Lewis's line is, Eros ceases to be a demon only when he ceases to be a god. Right. Right. And so when Eros takes its proper place, um, when Christ comes into this world, um, a world of desire, a world in which uh, desire is part of the good creation, um, but has its place, not as a demon or a god, but as a servant, as, right. as one that submits to Christ, um, then the particular, right, the particular, uh, this, this peasant Jew from Nazareth, the most particular flesh imaginable, um, becomes the site um, without remainder of God himself. Of God himself. So, of, of yeah. objective goodness, truth, and beauty right there. You look at him and see divine beauty. 
And for Augustine and everyone else in the world, um, this is a shattering paradox mm-hmm. because he, he describes it as the sermo humilis, the, the humble word, the, the barbaric word, the, the thing that you would never look there for perfection. You would right. never look, you know, I mean, even in the gospel text, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, it's it's the not good amongst amongst the towns and villages and places where even the locals are not looking for, for anything special to be happening. And so the humility of the word made flesh, the humility of Christ to inhabit and perpetually, right? He is glorified in that same body um, with those nail marks still in, enthroned now. Um, particularity is caught up in transcendence and now they are they're sort married of, to each other. They're married to each other. The bridegroom and the bride. That's right. Um, and which is, so, which is why I think the the, the passion of the Christ mm. becomes the center point of all history. It's the thing that which to which time is even tending backward now. It's the thing that all future moments that are that are chronologically after the passion still must refer back to for any sense of meaning, because it, it beyond just the beyond the the the, the humilis of the um, uh, of the incarnation you have the humility of the passion mm-hmm. which is which is again the the culmination of the old creation and the inauguration of the kingdom all in one moment right there on the cross and so you have that establishment and that and that bringing to completion all all at once, the union, the the uni- the, the sort of the union of the marriage of heaven and earth, um, in that moment when the, when the Lord is exalted and lifted up mm. and draws all to Himself, right? This is the language of desire. Mm-hmm. This is this is like this is this is that language. All desire ends here, right? And through this place where all desire tends, um, is the is the thing that to, to which desire sort of ultimately was designed to lead us, which mm. is to God Himself, and He gets there by first surrendering right. His desire. Yeah. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. Right, and so there is even that sense of tra- that tragic sense of suffering is redeemed at the cross through a a, re- a redemptive suffering, a, a what you know what I think our our teachers you know in Shakespeare would call a romantic suffering. Mm. A properly romantic suffering, mm-hmm. a tragedy that is redeemed, a tragedy that right. is saved, right? And, and and but it happens there, you know. And so eros is forever c- contoured now to the image of Christ crucified, um, and and always must, which is which never escapes the the radical particularity of a of that man suffering on that cross on that day with his mother there present. Uh, and also never escapes that this is a, this is divinity fully like the, the the divine trinity fully present here in this moment right. you know and and all things are there together bearing witness to this it's the center it becomes the center of all things nothing deferred everything present everything present now lewis is so good and always sort of enviably good at being a not only illustrative but intensely practical right right and and for all of our working through some of this language or these definitions or even this this rich and profound true theology there is still um the person listening the person on a jog the the high school student we teach that's right right? like i mean what does it mean for them how does what does it mean how does it travel right to very real men and women of all different ages who are 
inescapably bound up in these things all the time. Yep. Um, how do you begin to make those connections? <laughs> make those connections. I mean, I can think of like, for example, just as came into my mind, and I can think of doing a wedding for it was a it was a remarriage, yeah. um, an older couple, um, a second marriage um, with all interesting complexity there. Yeah. Um, you know, still did um, premarital counseling, walked through so many things of of hoped for broken, you know, uh, visions of era, like just so much, not naivete, right? Like, but reframing, redeeming, what could this mean now that you have seen what it wasn't, right? There was so much experience and understanding, but it needed so much clarity. I, it's just the most real situation. And I remember doing this wedding um, with a couple that really understood what it meant for the Lord to redeem you know, this kind of love in his sight. And it was very profound. It was the first sort of second wedding I had done, right? The second marriage. Um, and it was so complex, and yet it was incredibly moving because oftentimes with the young people, it's more the other side. It's, it's okay, now, you know, life is going to have its challenge, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like there's all, and you, and you want to adequately prepare as much as you can. And, and, um, and yet with this, it was different. And I, what I remember so distinctly about this this wedding was sort of how it felt to look out at the crowd or the hmm. the the gathered guests because uh, not many of them were young and not many of them were naive and not many of them were hopeful and it was like it was this strange gathering of what happens in Orange County. Hmm after some time goes by would people try to find and love and refine and relove and it was so complex and i remember two different people and one woman in particular who came up to me after the ceremony just in tears and just like and i and her question to me was more or less is it possible that what you said in the ceremony is true she was there. She loved these people. She was hopeful for them, you know, she was, but it was also conventional. It was like, yeah, you know, like we're here to support you, but you know, you know, we'll, I hope for the best, you know, like who knows? Um, you could just tell, I'm, I remember thinking, oh, do you not believe that's what's happening with them? Right. Because, but she was thinking of herself and she yeah. was thinking of, and we had this conversation and she talked about, you know, just a string of broken eros broken relationships it wasn't clear she had been married but she had clearly been in many serious relationships and she had always ultimately felt or been or, or participated in breaking or betraying that yeah. trust that hope that longing whatever it was and she was she was like are you telling the truth like I believe that when I was a teenager, I hoped for it. I obsessed over it. Maybe uh, I entered into, you know, this thinking this and that thinking that. And I just remember the collection. There was only a couple people who voiced it directly to me, but feeling a room of people in their forties, fifties and sixties in Orange County who had been through the ringer yeah. when it came to Eros yeah. in which it had been both a demon and a God. Yeah. And her question was, was just haunting. And of course, you know, we had this conversation um, about whether or not these things could be true. You know, it sounded like another myth that hadn't become fact in her experience. That's right. um, and I know she's one of very many. 
um, of very many different ages, which sort of sadder and sadder over the years, of course, um, that 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 woman who may have been, I don't know, her late 40s or something, um, I see that, that, that same person in teenagers. I see that person, I see too much experience, I see too much life at too young of ages um, over the years as a pastor um, in which you can tell they don't believe that's possible anymore. Um, they've, yeah. they've seen things and they've been a part of things and, and that sounds great and that sounds like a nice chapel talk you know, and thanks Reverend Butler and Dr. Woods for, you know, uh, reminding us about what we read and things like that. But is it possible? Like, is it, is it true? It is true. The way that, I mean, you, you hit, you hit it right on the head. Um, Christians are, are, I mean, they, they, they fall into error when it comes to eros because I mean, for the same reasons everybody does. Um, and there is a Christian version of, of the error of Eros, of the, the classical pagan notion of Eros. There's a Christianized, there's a Christian veneer that gets painted on it um, sometimes that just, instead of talking about, you know, Venus or, or Cupid, you know, it, it really Christian, it creates a kind of Christianized paganism. Um, and that's wrong because what it does in the trickle down effect is it makes people instrumental to an abstracted desire. And an unrequietable, an unfulfillable, abstracted desire. People become tools. They become instrumentalized to it so that um, it is not about a person anymore. The person becomes a means to the end of requiting an insatiable desire that ultimately has one fulfillment, um, but ultimately misses the the actual... Um, the actual sacrifice that would that would invite them to a place where they can experience the requiting of that desire. So what does that mean? It means in the like what, what the, because of the incarnation, because of the passion of Christ, because of all that we've discussed so far. It means that the as Lewis would say, the gift love of God has been made has been made possible for people to to have for people to experience and not just a kind of hungry, need, needy love um, that otherwise would characterize our diminishing existence mm. without Christ. So ultimately, and this is, you know, when I talk to my medieval lit students, when we, we spend most of the year reading Dante, whose whole Divine Comedy really is an elaborate story about this problem, um, Dante begins by saying he loves Beatrice, and then later on it's revealed that he made this error. He didn't love Beatrice. He loved this, this, this demonic idea of Beatrice that fulfilled the thing he think he wa- he thought he wanted. Mm. And I think that's at the heart of all of these different ways where people get wounded and where I, where I myself have been wounded is when either I, whenever I look at a person and say, you're a way for me to get what I want. Um, I have become demonic. Mm. He says he has that, um, disturbing but very uh, plain clear description where he says about when we say that uh and obviously this is sort of british speak of the time but uh when they talk about a lustful man prowling the street and they say he wants a woman and lewis says that's precisely what he does not want right he wants what she can do for him exactly like he wants a pack of cigarettes or a bottle of wine exactly and and there's there's a christian a sadly a christian version of that 
you know, and I think that that's where it gets really gnarly in the church. Push on that for a second. So, you know, is that, are you saying like the idea that, hey, good young Christians, all you need to do is get married, you know, meet at Bible college, whatever, and, and, and then you'll be doing the right thing in the right way and everything will be okay because you'll have a marriage covenant and so you can enjoy your sex, sexuality the proper way and everything's yeah, okay. But even, even going so far as to say that, you know, you look at a person and say, you're my means to communing with God, or you're my mm. means to get, getting closer to God. Like you're, an, you're a means to the end of me getting closer my, to God. My singleness is some kind of deprivation. Uh-huh. Um, and so to really experience life, yeah. I, I need to be married. And as a Christian, that means to really enter in. And the church will treat people that way as well, right? right. Like, oh, when will you, are you, are you looking? Are you almost, are you? <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, it's never okay to instrumentalize a person. Mm. For spiritual ends or carnal ends, Yeah, right? for spiritual or carnal ends. You know, and, and in the medieval period, this is something the church struggled with, was various Christian cults that saw people as, as you know, as something you could you could idealize, you could you could turn them into ideas, mm. right? As a way of, of thinking about idealization, people aren't ideas, and the incarnation of Christ makes impossible uh, the the uh, forever um, for us to say it's okay to idealize people. Mm. People have to remain people. They are that's who Christ came to redeem. That's who Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for. That's why in the, the sort of traditional wedding liturgy, the first question is, will you take this person, this woman, this man? And that's, that's not just throwaway language. It's, it's, there's a lot of thought put into that, that question alone, which is, will you, first of all, will you, not as a result of frenzy, Right. Not are you driven? Are you falling in love? Are you pull, are you are you are you being yanked along by a, a a desire that is out of control? Will you? Meaning, like, are is this an exercise of the will? Are you will are you will you will you, will you actually give yourself to this? Right. Not will, will you have yourself experience yourself being taken into this? Right. And most of marriage prep for us, you know, like you know, I always I always have to tell couples this is is not, you know, setting, like, is not doing therapy, not doing marriage therapy for them, or like, you know, giving them the, you know, indisputable 10 best techniques for staying married. (laughs) It's mainly to say, are you in a frenzy right now? And to identify that if it is. And to say, do you know this person? Because this is the person that you are marrying. And and those, those questions are highly significant. Will you take this person not just a person, not just the idea of a person, not the idea of this person. Not your Will fantasy you, of this, this person, right? This person as they really are. Right. Right. And have we taken the steps to make sure that you have an, an actual, like a, an understanding of that as best to the very best of your ability. And so I think that's where, that's where it begins. But I think when in any direction we depart from that, from for, into the idea that people are idealizable, uh, that's, that's a problem, you know? And so for our students, you know, um, I, I see this a lot, you know, I see this a lot in everybody, but you know, it's it, when, when, when the, the actual person is replaced with the idea of a person, um, you know, for whatever reason, but for whether it's for a no, a, a seemingly noble reason or not, like we've sinned. Mm-hmm. What's so, well, okay. We've talked in a previous episode in last season, sort of about our pornographic society right. and what's so interesting and, terrifying is the way in which the pornographic makes uh, both the carnal and the ideal the same right right abstraction mm-hmm. um and instrumentalization in a hyper pornographic society people are less and less willing i remember a famous uh, piece it might have been in the atlantic 
um, in which they were exploring the challenge in Japan um, with declining marriage rates, declining birth rates, and the government was having to invest government money in relationship coaches because people growing up on a, in a more and more virtual space and a more and more pornographically available space uh, and a heavy sort of intense working culture um, were finding it um, foolish, um, unbelievably uh, pointlessly difficult to enter into actual relationships with physical other people for long periods of time. Because it takes time. It's it was unbelievably <laughs> and effort and inconvenient. Yeah. And and it's like when the when the motive factor for a young person in their twenties to try to live in a very expensive city, for example, um, was to be at work for sixty to eighty right. hours and, and to sleep only as you know the absolute necessity of mm -hmm. what you needed to do the next day's um, hustle. Mm -hmm. um, combining that drive and the availability of the pornographic, um, I just remember interview after interview after interview with 20-something men and women saying, like, why? Why would I be in a, why would I date? Like, what are you talking about? Like, right. how could there be time for that? And, and you know what people are actually like? Like, <laughs> they can be rude, they can be disgusting, they can be all these things, they, they're encumbrances. Um, and it's not to make, you know, Japanese culture for young adults, you know, some whatever. I always describe it as our near future. Um, it's here. And, yeah. and our present. And, and people, people are, are finding it more and more difficult and less and less interesting to relate to and deal with people, mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes to Eros. Right. Um, because we've been, we've been given... Um, an endless um, sort of variety of the abstract and the carnal, um, you know, which we can uh, quote unquote enjoy, you know, to our destruction in isolation. Mm -hmm. And if we have come to believe that that's what that is, um, then then why serve it up in a way that's slower or less convenient um, and actually has its own will and purposes and I mean, I mean, it really is an exacerbated issue because of the pornographic age well, we're well, in. I think that I think that's right. I think you're. I think it hits on the, the the the. There's a there's a there's something that's obliged, right? There's a there's something that's called upon in genuine eros, and the, the again the passion of Christ reveals this, it reveals that there is an, a donation of self, a complete donation of self, which is why we say you know in in the Christian ideal of marriage that it is monogamous and it is it's undivided it, it's undividable which is another way of saying monogamous right mm -hmm. you get you make this you make this kind of offering once and you also you also it's it's because it's a genuine sacrifice it's irrevocable and so you know the, the passion reveals the contours of true eros which means that it requires a donation of self a gift of the self which is what we would only, what we could only mean, but when we say something is ecstatic, is like I have gone out of myself because I have offered myself mm. to this, and it is irrevocable because it is sacrificial. That is properly scary. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to minimize that. Yeah, sacrificial. I have to surrender without myself. certain outcomes, without controlling right. those outcomes. It's a form of submission and surrender, mutual right. submission in Ephesians five's language, right? right. Um, submit to one another out of reverence for that's, Christ. That's the language of sacrifice. Yeah. Make an offering of yourselves for and to the other, and that that is the language of sacrifice that's predicated on Christ's sacrifice. 
That's why in like the in the Christian notion of marriage, you have the only place that I'm aware of in all of thought where eros is becomes something redemptive and salvific, mm-hmm. and and but it requires the same contours that the passion of the passion, which is an offering of the self of a, a gift of the, an oblation of the self once offered mm-hmm. sacrificially and irretrievably. Mm. And that's, and that's why, you know, all the, you know, sort of definitions of marriage in the, in the Christian tradition have developed is as, as sort of definitions of what that means. They're not arbitrary, you know, breaks with other, with other social conventions. They are meditations on the passion of Christ and what, and how that reveals the fullness of humanness in this particular way. And what's beautiful about that is, and Lewis keys this up as well, is when Eros is redeemed, when it's when it's discovered and enjoyed through surrender um, to another, through this gift, this mm-hmm. donation of oneself to an uncertain future, but out of genuine faith, right? Yeah. Trust that out of reverence for Christ, all manner of things shall be well, even though I have no idea what that's going to look right. like. Um, when Eros finds its proper place in that context, no longer a demon or a god, it also loses so much of its intensity, which Lewis keys up when he describes sort of the insufferable solemnization of Eros, right. where it's either this like it's dour, grim. sacred, whatever, or it is this this center of self-identification right um either my sexuality and what i do with my body is the very thing i am which is a total god right like Mm -hmm. it is absolutized in this way but it's also taking it unbelievably seriously that we're so obsessed with sex and sexuality we are solemnizing this whether you think you're doing it as a libertine or a puritan Mm -hmm. um you are absolutely taking too seriously eros and it is out of proportion to the thing it actually is right and when it's in its place lewis describes when it's redeemed when it's one of the loves surrendered in its order it becomes funny it becomes light it becomes enjoyable it becomes something else when we were talking to our students this last year you know when we had our, our week talking about you know these these sorts of things um, you know, it was a Q and a panel and, and someone said, well, like, well, what have you found most surprising about, you know, about like, you know, me, you know, sexuality is, you know, to everybody who, who is married. And it was like, I think one of the surprising, most surprising answers for the students was, uh, it's a lot funnier than you think it is. <laughs> and, and they're like, and they're just like all taken aback. Cause to them, it's an incredibly serious, sure. like it's, it's, it's severe. It's either a demon or a God. Yeah. Not serious yeah. in the proper sense of like having gravity and, and acknowledging that gravity, but it's, it's severe. It has severity to it mm. and a grimness almost to mm. it. It's a little bit dour. This is where, again, I think that the true libertine and the true Puritan really ha- are on the same page with each other. Actually, yeah. they both have, have made this thing a, a severe thing. Um, and, and really there's, I think, in, you know, the, the real thing is, is mirth, it's mirthful, mm-hmm. um, because, because it is, a, but it's only possible through that, that self-donation, mm. um, the more, and, and this, this is again, the idea that, that Lewis, that haunts Lewis's fiction, right? Everybody who, who sort of withholds themselves ends up in a hellish state and everybody who donates themselves to the thing that is beyond and bigger than them finds that they not only receive themselves back, but they receive that self back noble and glorious mm. and full of jollity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's meant, that's meant again as a moral, an, an imaginative formation for us in all of Lewis's works, which is, yeah, 
the the ancients had a, something right when they said you have to die to live and you have to you have to experience death to know the ultimate beauty um in the christian narrative the great hope of the gospel is of course that um that the life beyond that death has come among us mm. that the resurrection is among us and in us and and so to to lose our life is to begin finding it immediately mm. and to in the moment of death is the moment of ultimate life it's not casting ourselves like a slingshot into the expanse hoping we've aimed correctly mm. it's to immediately pass through a veil and into the arms of the one who can require all desire and there's know, an immediacy to that and i know that those i mean if we were to just use a simple phrase but those who have happy marriages mm -hmm. it's 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 almost always it seems to the extent that they have surrendered control yeah. over their future surrender like i can just think of you know the ambitions of youth and all these things and and one of the great joys of my life in getting married and having children and all these things is is deliberate moments in which the lord said i want you to surrender to let go of what you wanted to be mm -hmm. where you wanted to end up all the things you had hoped to to meet satisfy uh, succeed at whatever it is um and I want you to surrender those to me. I want you to surrender those to your family. Surrender the, just sur surrender, not give up, you know, like not lose motivation, but find motivation differently because now you are excited about life precisely because it's not on your terms anymore. Right. And it can be described as something much, much more like an adventure, something much more like a quest or a discovery because it isn't being mapped out in advance and you aren't just trying to line up, as you say, like the 10 ways to get there to the next thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, we've, we let go, you let go of that, that pretension. Um, and you find that the, that the, the real, again, like Britomart, right? The real world is better than the world of fairy. It's better than the world of fantasy. Um, a, a foray into fantasy is useful insofar as we return more noble into the world of fact, mm -hmm. into the world of history. Um, and the, I think that again, to draw back on our conversation of what might define the pornographic versus the iconic or the artistic is the pornographic is a, is a world of fantasy that tells us to let go of the world of reality and the the world of of true imagination is the world that says come here so that you might return there again it's like mm -hmm. aslan at the end of the last battle the reason you came to narnia is so that you could know me by my other name in your world right um and, and that's and that's the whole purpose of imagination right and so i think you know you you have that that eros you know and the question of eros it it delivers us when it is redeemed. It delivers us into a world that's better than the one we thought we wanted for ourselves. Right. You know, in my, in my church on Sunday, we, our collect for the week was, you know, you are more ready to give, um, more ready to give than we are to ask. Mm. And you are, you are inclined to give us more and better than we are able to desire or deserve. Amen and amen. Reverend Butler, thank you so much thank you, uh, David. for this conversation. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to frombabylonwithlove.com, click on newsletter, and sign up there. 
until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.